Bitcoin meetups are really fun and you meet all sorts of people, including early Bitcoiners. So you're thinking, oh, wow, all of these down low, super rich dudes, right? Showed up in their Ferraris, I'm sure. No, no, they're just really, really depressed. Yeah, we're just wrecked people. <laughs> because the earlier you are to Bitcoin, the more regrets you have. The, the stupider and stupider things you spent your Bitcoin on. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, May 27th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here with... How's it going? Hey, Chris. Have you noticed that there are a lot of podcasts where they always start with, Hey, how's it going? And the other person says, Fine, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Well, you're supposed to have friendly banter. Don't you know it's in the podcast handbook? You got to have friendly banter at the beginning of your show. You didn't give me that handbook. Oh, right. Yeah. Or was it that thing you threw at me? Yeah, you're just supposed to catch it. I'll send you the ebook copy. I still have that cut over my eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought maybe osmosis would do the trick. <laughs> Today, we're going to discuss economics, including some news about CBDCs, the Crypto Voices Global Monetary Base Report, which is really interesting if you're interested in monetary economics. We're going to punch down on high-speed blockchains in our tokenomics section. And then we're going to have a brief detour to what a mess the U.S. energy grid is and how that will shake out this summer. We have two privacy stories, a Bitcoin education segment on package relay, which is technical but fascinating. And then we have a bunch of boosts. So that's going to be our show. That sounds like a great show. Shall we jump into CBDCs? Let's talk about this. This has been a big topic this week because the IMF the and the World Economic Forum, they have like this thing with European leaders that they held this last week and CBDCs came up, of course, as a great thing. You know, they, they offer real economic opportunity as far as they're concerned. But they said something in there. I wonder what you think about this. They said they think they can figure out a way to keep retail banks involved, but they're not sure. Like they, they hedged. They're like, this, there may not be a future where the retail bank plays a role. Well, I think this gets to a point that the American Banking Association has made, and I'm sure we've made, which is CBDCs kill traditional banking. So our traditional financial sector will die in the presence of a CBDC. Because, and that, okay, yeah, you're going to explain why. I'm like, why? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why, Dad. Well, because the CBDC is just like having a checking account with the central bank. Right. And the contract between central banks and the banks they regulate, the commercial banks, is that we're the central bank, we bank banks, and banks bank people. So the CBDC is actually cutting out the middleman and the central bank directly banking its population. And you could see maybe there's some kind of scheme they could come up with in the states to keep the retail banks involved, but it does sort of make them irrelevant, like any centrally controlled currency would. Yeah, exactly. Why do you need a federated banking model if you can directly control every user's wallet, which is sort of the dystopian panopticon surveillance nightmare of the CBDC model? Yeah, and at this uh, economic forum, I, one of the clips I watched there were talking about how it would give a great system to track your social score so consumers could look at their social and you know their whole ESG score in one spot, in one snapshot across everything they buy, everything they consume. They could load up an app one day and they could look at their CBDC bank account app and the, on there would be, here's your bank account and here is your overall carbon score is what they were calling it, but it's an ESG score. Well, that just sounds like a terrible idea because I think that calculations of ESG metrics are very subjective. And I know for a fact that there's been a push inside the European Union to get natural gas classified as a renewable energy source. Now, it's clearly not. Natural gas is basically gaseous coal. 
it's burning carbon. It's a little cleaner than coal, or a lot cleaner maybe, but it's still adding greenhouse gases. So why would you try to get that classified as a renewable energy source? Why? Because it's got a lot of oomph. <laughs> because why. they need it. <laughs> yeah. Because without natural gas, Germany can't have an economy, and Europe is really going to be in a serious situation, even a dangerous situation. Yeah, it's energy density at the end of the day. It's dense energy. And if you want to lean into renewables like wind and solar, you actually need natural gas peaking plants to balance those out because the renewables have an anti-network effect where the more renewables on the grid, the worse the grid becomes because the renewables turn on and off at the same time. So you have to have an on-demand source like natural gas to balance that off when the renewables turn off. Yep. And uh, of course, there's a skill set and an infrastructure and a know-how around natural gas as well that makes it on top of it. How do we get from CBDCs to that though? Well, because CBDCs are... Ah, the social score, the ESG stuff, right. They're a solution in search of a problem to solve because... And they're kind of lumping these problems together. They're lumping climate in, in with this. Right. They're just throwing everything at the wall and saying, what could we use to justify breaking financial privacy irrevocably, breaking democracy irrevocably? Because we can't have democracy in the presence of total financial surveillance. Because now, if anyone in a position of authority can look at my spending, they know everything about me. And they can identify potential behaviors that would be threatening to a political regime. And because they directly control your finances, they can now sanction you. They can create twisted incentives to control people. And if you're saying, well, that wouldn't happen, I'm sorry. When has there been a program that vastly expanded government power that didn't also produce new abuses. Please write in. Love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, I was actually trying to, I was scraping my head. I'm like, can I think of one example? There must you be were, one. You were focusing so hard. <laughs> you just I, went silent. Yeah, I really don't, I can't think of one because that is a fair point. And I think that can sometimes be a, a politically charged position that you've just taken there. But I, I know, knowing you, you're not saying that from a right left perspective. You're just saying that from a matter of fact perspective. Right. I'm not saying that because systems of power generate abuse, we shouldn't have systems of power. Hello, we've got Somalia, line three. They'd like some systems of power, please. <laughs> right. It's just fixing the system and being honest about where its flaws are. Right. That's part of it. And the CBDCs are really kind of an encapsulation of everything that's wrong with the power centers right now and a continuation of everything that's been broken from a monetary policy. Exactly. The CBDC value proposition is, hey, we're the central bank and you know how our monetary policy has been inflating asset markets, but also simultaneously destroying the real economy and impoverishing 90 percent of citizens? Well, we'd like to do more of that. And we've pushed our traditional system as far as it can go. So with a CBDC, we'll actually be able to enact our elitist broken policy on you directly. Yay. Yeah. It's the problem is, is that we just haven't been able to manage it enough. If we could just manage things a little bit more, then we could really solve it. Ironically, they kept talking about this moment of crisis that we face. Uh, and they also talked about how there's going to be population unrest and there's going to be anger. Um, Charles, whatever his name is, uh, Charles uh, Schwab, he said that this is we're entering into a period that it's going to cause unrest. 
for an extended period of time because we it will it will remain that way until we have a solution is what he said and um the thing that i find so ironic about all of it they created the crisis they created the economic crisis the food shortages and everything and of course they all say it was putin as if these last 5 months have caused the last 40 years of economic policy and so they're up there saying that we're facing a crisis saying that they're the only ones that can save us and saying things like cbdc's are the path to solving these problems and getting the climate crisis under control is a path to solving this when everything they've done to solve the climate has made the situation worse. Everything they've done with monetary policy has made the situation worse. In fact, one of the things that we are struggling with right now isn't a lack of possible energy production, but we have chosen very, very poorly in our energy policy. And now we're suffering as a result. And we've chosen poorly in our monetary policy. And everyone is suffering as a result. Inflation has taken off across the entire West. All Western nations are suffering from historic levels of inflation right now. Well, all nations. That wasn't Putin, right? That was their policy. <laughs> the very people that want to do this stuff. <laughs> it's just wild. And you know what? I think the vast majority, they just don't even know what's going on. So they just follow along. They just, okay, all right, that's it. So we don't want to get stuck in the CBDC morass. At the same time, I think that Chris has a good point, which is that we currently have a legacy ruling class. These are the people like Christine Lagarde, Jay Powell, you know, insert name of U.S. Senator. These are people who have been in power for a long time, and they've generally benefited from very loose monetary policy that has enriched people in power because they get inside information on where to park their portfolio. And well, them and their families are close to the money spigot as well. Right. So we live in a world of a cantillon effect. Exactly. I've actually mispronounced that for years. I used to call it cantillion. That's what I thought it was. But I think it's actually spelled cantillon. Okay. And so for our listeners who might not remember, the cantillon effect is that when new money enters the world, it doesn't magically appear everywhere equally. There's usually an entry point, which is often the central bank. And so if you imagine it like water flowing downhill, if you are standing farther up the hill, like farther up society, you actually get to use that water first. You get to use that new money first before inflation has been realized in prices. So not only do you get new money out of nothing, but you also get to spend it while it still has more purchasing power. Whereas people further down the social ladder, they just get the inflation. And so they're sort of doubly hurt by the creation of new money. And we witnessed this as a public in the just incredible increase in asset. And one of the fun things you can do is you can go to tradingview.com and you can overlay the production of money. I think it's like the M2 money supply, right? You can overlay that with the S&P 500 and the two lines are in perfect synchronization. As the money supply goes up, the S&P 500 goes up. As the money supply is turned off, the S&P 500 goes down. And they are in exact correlation. The term for that is TINA. There is no alternative. This has been the mantra behind people piling into the stock market. Well, newsflash, there's an alternative now. It's called Bitcoin. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, that's why everything has been linked. Because of this monetary policy, macro now just controls everything. They've, they've, they've basically moved it this direction. Uh, and you're also seeing it affect the population. Like savings rates in the U.S. have plummeted. If you look at the chart that the government puts out, we'll have a link in the show notes, U.S. savings has essentially turned into a, a altcoin price chart. It is bottoming. It's just dropping like crazy. Right. Savings rates jumped up during the pandemic because people got some stimmy checks 
And then we're also prevented from going out to bars and restaurants and spending a lot of that money. So people bought a lot of houses and durable goods, but they also saved more. And now you'd actually expect savings to be increasing as interest rates are going up. But I think savings falling off suggests something else. Maybe the job market is less good. I mean, I have a theory. I think a lot of people during the pandemic and before, you know, really since 2008, we've never recovered from 2008. Some people were really wiped out and some people have been doing really well. They got good careers. They got some assets. They got some real estate. But I can tell you when I travel the United States in my RV, there are the majority of the country that I travel through never recovered from 2008. And I watched it because I was on the road a little bit before 2008. And I've been on the road after. And there is ginormous sections of the country that never recovered. But then there is all of the sections on the edges that did. And they have built up lifestyles with multiple cars, big houses, a yard keeper, memberships to gyms. Like they've built up these really nice lifestyles. And I think people are tapping their savings. And if you look at it, it's really as inflation starts to climb because inflation really started hitting us in January of 2020. We didn't talk about it. It was transitory, but it really started becoming a problem right when the savings rate starts to go down. And I think it's because people are attempting to maintain a certain lifestyle and they're tapping their savings to do it. And I also think that this 5% number here that now it says, you know, the rate has dropped to 5%. I think that's actually probably generous. Yeah, that could be it. So we just left CBDCs behind, but I want to just say one more thing about Circle. So Circle is a company that produces a stablecoin called USDC. And we started talking about it earlier because since the Terra Luna blow up, a lot of people have been redeeming their tethers. Tether is another stablecoin, but Tether is a very opaque company with a pretty bad reputation, let's be honest. So it looks like people are moving stablecoins out of Tether, out of less reputable stablecoin providers into USDC, which is run by Circle, which is a U.S. regulated financial company. And Circle, like any bank, doesn't like a CBDC because they see it as competition and they're right. And this is a point we brought up when we've talked about the eCash Act, which is a bill from our favorite modern monetary theorist, Rohan Gray. And the eCash Act is a proposal that is against CBDCs, precisely because Rohan and his MMT crowd, or some of them at least, think that the central bank having full financial surveillance of the economy is a terrible idea. So the eCash Act is about creating a private digital money. Unfortunately, I think that they probably should have just gone with, frankly, Bitcoin or Monero. Obviously, there's some scaling issues there, but their solution to me seems a little difficult because it requires these hardware devices to allow you to have a physical wallet that contains a digital token. Basically, if you could do this without a blockchain and proof of work and consensus, then Bitcoin would be doing it. Not only is there the hardware element, but there's actually a astronomical software stack that has to still be created for that. There's not a solid spec. It feels like one of those things that if it were to pass, it would take 10 years to 15 years of development to make it sound. You know what I mean? Like It, it, it would probably take a lot of money to develop. Yeah. I mean, the software stack and the hardware stack both have to be an incredible undertaking. That's the real kind of sneaky, low-key thing about Bitcoin is it's got you know, 13 years of 100% uptime, it has a really solid track record and really solid security in that. That's hard to beat. Agreed. And Russia has noticed that that is hard to beat because as we've discussed previously, Russia is currently under sanctions due to their war of aggression in Ukraine. And we talked about how Russia was going to respond to this. And we pointed out that 
their first response will probably be to try to engage in energy market trading using gold or some other neutral asset because the dollar-based financial system is being weaponized against them. It looked like Chinese banks were assisting Russia with doing money transfers for oil for a while. Hmm, surprise. And Russia has started asking for payment in rubles from the European Union. I'm not 100% sure what the implications of that are. The implications are they're not going to do it for most of it. Frankly, I think it's a little, a bit of theater, because at the end of the day, if you pay for oil in euros or rubles, the Russian central bank can use those euros to buy rubles or those rubles to buy euros. So it doesn't really matter as long as the exchange rate value they're getting is the same, frankly. Right. Or is there is there some limitation on who can and can't buy rubles right now just because of sanctions, perhaps? Does that make it extra tricky? That was the one piece of, like, I, I know that may be playing an element here, but I don't know. Yeah, you're really getting into the nitty gritty of why the legacy financial system <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Do you believe this, though? Like these stories. So it says here, this is a quote from the head of finance ministry of the financial policy department in Russia. The quote is, the idea of using digital currencies in transactions for international settlements is being actively discussed. But they've been saying that since the start of this thing, since the start of the sanctions. And I feel like this is a negotiating tactic to say, hey, if you guys push it too much further than this, because they've left a couple of key banks still connected to the SWIFT system. If you push it further, though, we're going we're gonna to do this digital currency stuff. Like it's a Trump card or something, like a negotiation tactic kind of thing. The weird thing about the sanctions is how devastating they've been while they were actually designed to not interrupt the Russian energy markets, because Europe is entirely dependent on Russian energy to remain viable as a modern economy. Yeah, they need all that renewable natural gas. Exactly. That green natural gas. Yeah. <laughs> so the sanctions were actually crafted to carve out Russian energy. But then I guess the European public got so behind the Ukrainian cause that they started lobbying their politicians to cut out Russian energy. I mean, admirable. At the same time, I wonder if they understand the implications for their lifestyle because their energy prices are going to go up 10x or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be something. I think it would be smart for Russia to get their head around this anyways, because as you and I both know, just from feedback to the show and whatnot, Russian people are looking at cryptocurrencies more as a store of long-term wealth because their currency is all over the place right now. It was hammered initially, and now it's actually doing quite well because I think they've temporarily pegged it to gold or something like that. They have, they're playing some sort of shenanigans with the ruble right now to get, to get it back up and get it strong again. But my understanding which is very limited, is that it is a temporary maneuver and the Russian people expect the value of the ruble to begin to crash again at some point. I was speaking with a Russian person who said, there's one thing you can always count on. If you hold rubles, they're going to go to zero over time. <laughs> yeah, so I can imagine cryptocurrencies are pretty popular or digital assets, as the regulators like to call them, are pretty popular with the uh, Russian people. So they're representatives probably should get their heads wrapped around this stuff. Yeah. So kind of a nothing burger article at the same time. The way we see this happening is everyone's going to mess around trying to use alternatives to the dollar to make payments. And then they're going to try Bitcoin and it's probably going to work really great for them. And then they're going to say, like we all did, hey, why the heck didn't I do this before? This is so great. Yeah, I think it is all part of the game theory, too. Like you watch it playing out right now in real time with Russia and the way they're either using it for leverage or if they're serious, it's all part of that gameplay. And I think it's fascinating to watch. You're right. It isn't a huge update other than 
there is a point in time where if you would have gone back and a nation state said, we're thinking about using digital currencies for international trade, that would have been a huge story. But now it's like, oh, well, it's Russia, so we're not going to talk about it. But I think it's significant. The Overton window has certainly widened on this subject. Yes, indeed. Since we're talking about currencies, let's jump into Matthew Mazinkas's. Actually, I'm not sure about his last name. This fellow has a podcast called Crypto Voices, and one thing that they do is they have an annual global monetary base report. Now, Matthew is a super economics nerd. Like, he makes your Bitcoin dad look like a cool kid who drinks Coors Light at the beach. Do you drink Coors Light? I'm guessing not, because it's not Cooler's Light. It's Coors Light, right? I can't even pronounce it. Yeah, I think you call it Coors Light. Get me a Coors Light. I didn't know that. That sounds sounds almost French. (laughs) Sounds kind of classy, Coors. You know it's classy because the mountains light up when it's cold. And when the mountains fade, the can's not cold, so you shouldn't drink the beer because otherwise it tastes did you know this about Coors? I don't understand what Coors Light cans have mountains that turn blue when the beer is cold so you can drink it at optimum temperature because it tastes like crap otherwise. So they have so they've got like some weird chemical coating on yeah. the can that turns blue. God, that sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. What Matthew does here is it's just an impressive amount of work. It feels like if there was a if Twitter had a throw a few sats at the original poster button, I'd be hitting that button right now because he should post this on stacker.news. He should. This is the kind of reporting that usually people have to pay to get access to a report. This is the sort of reporting that should be done by international economic organizations, but they don't because it's too much work and it also, you know, kind of undermines your confidence in the world as it is. So let's dive in. What Matthew's doing here is he's looking at the monetary base of the world's top 50 fiat currencies. Now, you've probably heard terms like M1, M2, M3. These are measures of money. These are classifications of different monetary assets. And so M1 is generally considered base money, which is physical dollars or some digital dollars too, and also bank deposits. And I think some time deposits, like maybe certificate deposits, which is uh, for our younger listeners, CDs or certificate deposits was these incredible things you could do where you could go to your bank and give them like $1,000 and they would take it for six months or a year and they would just give you a higher interest rate on it. I remember I opened a CD once and I got, I want to say 5% interest. Yeah, that used to be a way to like, you know, just hold on to your money safely and, and make a little something. Uh, back, back in my day, That's what you'd do is if you had a few thousand bucks, you didn't need it for a few years, you'd throw it in a CD. And with monetary repression, which is a central bank policy we've been living with for an extended period, you don't get to have yield on your money like that anymore. So what we're getting at is the monetary base is not M1, M2, M3. The monetary base is just physical dollars and digital dollars that are very cash-like. And the reason that Matthew is doing all this research and going to 50 different central banks to get this data directly is because this basic cash is what Bitcoin is competing with. Bitcoin has all of these other incredible properties, but it is actually just this basic cash. And so when people compare Bitcoin to credit cards or PayPal or whatever, just tell them to shut up. It's completely wrong. Bitcoin is cash. It's comparable to a dollar bill. Credit cards, bank transfers, these take time to clear, often months. So whereas Bitcoin clears nearly instantaneously and even instantaneously on the Lightning Network. So it's an apples to oranges. I mean, less similar than apples and oranges. Apples to gravel comparison. I like that. Yeah. 
Now, one great thing about this thread, which is taken from the report, which you can find on Matthew's Twitter profile, is the charts. And so there's an incredible chart. It's called GDP per capita versus basic money per capita. Now, the idea is one way to measure how wealthy a country is, is GDP per capita. That means taking all the stuff that statisticians estimate a country has produced over a year and dividing it by the population, and you get a sense of how rich that country is. Now, the richest country by GDP per capita in the world is Norway, because there's not a lot of people, and they have a huge amount of North Sea oil, which they sell. So they distribute that, actually, to the the proceeds to their population via services. Uh So everyone's doing pretty well. Norway. I wouldn't have guessed it. But what's fascinating is Norway has very high GDP per capita, I think nearly $100,000 per person. But the basic money per capita is only $1,600. So what's going on here? Basically, Norway is pioneering a cashless society. Apparently, it's difficult to use cash in Norway today because they're just culturally getting used to using bank cards and credit cards and digital payments everywhere. And so if you try to pay with cash, you might get a funny look like, what's wrong with you? Are you a criminal or something? So this is an interesting cultural shift. Now, the second entry on this chart is Switzerland. Switzerland has a very high GDP per capita, 96000 per person, but also an incredibly high basic money per capita, which is 94000 per person. This is interesting, and I think it's because the Swiss franc is actually used as a savings vehicle overseas for a lot of people. I remember once watching Russian TV, and the commentator was saying, oh, yeah, things are looking bad. Better buy Swiss francs. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? What is going on here? I've heard that before, yeah. So the United States has a relatively high GDP per capita, which is around $76,000, and the money per capita is around $18,000. This would make it number four in the world as money per capita. But actually, as someone who lives in the United States, I don't think people use cash at all. I mean, I think people generally just use a credit card for everything. So where does this $18,000 cash per capita number come from? Well, I think it's mainly because U.S. dollars are held overseas. There's a huge amount of saving overseas happening with U.S. cash. Yeah, the estimates are the majority of dollars that are out there in the world are outside of America's borders. I mean, think about that for a moment. <laughs> that shows you sort of how the system works. People buying up dollars, probably probably a lot of its countries buying up dollars for trade, for exchange during trade. Yeah. And then the last thing in this chart that's fascinating is Japan, because Japan has a massive amount of money per person. And I think that this is kind of interesting because from what I've heard, Japan is a largely cash-based society. So this just might be a peculiarity about Japan, you know, famous for being a place where a lot of like interesting technology is being used, but oddly anachronistic. Like in Japan, fax machines are still very popular. Most homes have a fax machine. That's retro cool. That's what that is. They're just hip. (laughs) So this is a fascinating chart for economics nerds, and it's incredibly difficult to get this data. So the fact that Matthew has gone and done this is really impressive. Now, let's get to Bitcoin and what this means in terms of base money. So chart number 23 is pretty interesting. This is gold on a chart and global central bank money supply. And what you can kind of see is that, one, the ratio of gold to money supply has never been lower than it is today. And this ratio peaked, oddly enough, in 
the 1980s. So after the U.S. depegged from the dollar, uh, the dollar from gold in 1971, the amount of gold held by central banks peaks in around 1980. And at that point, you actually essentially have 100% base money to gold ratio in central bank custody. But now this number's down to 6%. And global base money is shooting up at the same time. So what you're kind of seeing is that when Nixon broke the dollar gold peg, the world had relatively high inflation in the 1970s, but the massive expansion of the money supply actually really started in 2000 with the 2000 dot-com crisis. Yep. Isn't that fascinating? When you look at this chart, you can see that essentially 90% of money in the world was created in the past 20 years. Yeah. And then it really, really accelerates in 20, uh, in 2008. And then of course, in the, during the pandemic, it just skyrockets in, in 2020. Fascinating when you look at the chart. And again, these will all be linked in the show notes. So just look for episode 19. It's fascinating to see essentially gold on, and when you zoom out, it's on a downward trajectory since 1982, 1981. So for 40 years, gold on average has been on a downward trajectory. And yet, it's still got this narrative of where you go to, to save money and store your value. I got a panicked call from a family member this weekend. Oh, yeah? Saying, uh, everything's going to crash. I don't know what they were watching. I'm going to go buy silver. Would you like me to get you some? You can pay me back. we got to get it. It's an emergency. No, not silver. There are a lot of silver scams. This is where I'm going with this. It's like, but when you look at this, it doesn't look like it's actually been a real safe haven. Of course, when you're competing against the fiat money printing machine, how could you be? This is really something. I mean, look at, again, go to the show notes and look at this and then go look at 2020. And then it's just parabolic from 2020. A general consensus view among financial analysts is that the next financial crisis, which is coming, it's kind of expected as the Fed is raising interest rates. The consensus view is that the Fed is going to raise interest rates until credit markets break. And then when credit markets break, and this basically means that corporations can no longer issue new debt, or maybe the U.S. Treasury has trouble selling U.S. government debt, then the Fed will step in and we'll see another spike in money creation. So honestly, hyperinflation, it's a term that's thrown around a lot. But when you look at the growth in global fiat money supply, you got to be scratching your head and thinking, gosh, this uh, this is probably going to end really badly. Now, I just want to discuss one more interesting chart on here. And obviously, two men talking about charts on a podcast, probably not the most exciting <laughs> format. This is where all podcast players need to support Cloud Chapters because in there you could actually display these images in the podcast player as we're talking. You're joking. Nope, 100% serious. It's just the, not all the apps support it yet. Because yeah. it's not video. It's a completely different medium. But if we could just send one... And all you're doing is just linking to the image. You don't even have to put the image in the in the MP3 file. You just link to it. Yeah, so the... it would be susceptible to bit rot, but... Potentially, yeah. You know, that would be generally people listen to them quickly. So. But I think when, it, like, if the link were to die, it would just fail back to the album art. So okay. not so bad. But yeah, I think pod, it's another just another podcasting 2.0 feature. I'd love to see adopted. Wow, gosh. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm sold on podcasting 2.0. <laughs> but yeah, these charts are these charts are probably a little hard to uh, grasp without seeing them. So it might be useful to go take a look after we're done talking about them. But we are picking out the best of the best. There's a lot more in there. One interesting takeaway is that over the past 10 years, since 2009, the largest money, quote unquote, 
of the global monetary base has actually been gold. Gold by its dollar market cap is larger than the amount of base money dollars in circulation. And that's been true for the past 13 years. Now, what's really interesting is how Bitcoin has moved up the chart of global base money. So in 2013, Bitcoin was number 53 in terms of the largest global base monies. Then in 2017, it jumps to number 11. That was the 2017 bull run. Then in 2018, it's down to 22 because that was the crash. Yeah. And now in 2022, it's at number nine. This sort of looks like Bitcoin being highly volatile, but climbing up the base money ranking. The trend is our friend overall. Right. If we go from 11 to 9 in five years, well, that means that the Bitcoin is going to be overtaking the British pound as a base money in a couple of years. Coming for you. We're coming for you, pound. <laughs> Gosh, the U.S. gives it to Britain for 50 years and then Satoshi Nakamoto finishes them off. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> uh, but don't worry. It's coming for all of them eventually. Well, we highly recommend that you check out this Twitter thread. Lots of fun analysis and charts, and it's just not what you're expecting. It's very surprising what the actual data suggests. And it's a knitter link, knitter, so that way you don't have to fuss with Twitter. It's just one nice, easy-to-read thread. Great project. Thanks to the dev there. Gosh, what's his name? Knitter dev. Knitter, not, um, I thought it was like Zeus or Zedaeus or oh, something. Oh, maybe. Yeah. He should boost in and let us know what his name is. We should boost him. If, I know. If it were enabled. Seriously. I've tried to run Knitter at home, but I run into an odd rate limiting problem. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Twitter's API. Can, I've heard that can be a problem. Yeah. It's, it's apparently a real struggle for the project to find a way around that. Okay. So for something a little lighter, well, it's, is it really lighter? It's tokenomics. So it's supposed to be a fun schadenfreude moment where we can just laugh at the silliness of an altcoin. But unfortunately, I found something that is... It involves math and Poisson distributions. So let's see how this goes over. All right. Okay. Now, Merch is a developer at Chaincode Labs. So he works on, I think, Lightning, maybe. But Merch is also very active on the bitcoin.stackexchange.com forum. So he answers a lot of questions on there. And in this thread, he's actually asked a question and then answered it. So I think he wanted to <laughs> he wanted to let people know. The question is, how would faster blocks cause mining centralization? And his answer involves several charts, several formulas. But here's the TLDR. Basically, finding new blocks is a lottery. And the outcome is based on what's called a Poisson distribution. This means that at any moment, the next Bitcoin block is on average 10 minutes away. So if I mine a block and it's now one second after I've mined that block, the next block is still 10 minutes away on average. And the difficulty rate on the network will adjust to ensure that as close to 10 minute window as possible. Right. It'll adjust every two weeks. So sometimes this window drifts as new hash power comes online, but it's, it's roughly stable. But 10 minutes after the last block has been mined, we're still 10 minutes away from the next block. This might be hard to kind of intuit, but essentially blocks are discovered on average. And that means that you can have two blocks within 10 seconds, and you can also have one block and then an hour later, another block. So this does happen. The problem here is when you start to make blocks come faster, which is what a lot of blockchain projects do to talk about how high speed, high capacity their chain is, 
This starts to mess around with the distribution of blocks to miners. Now, what this means is the faster your blocks are coming, the stronger the incentive for the miner to be in the biggest mining pool because they have the highest chance of getting the reward. Exactly. And something about shortening the time between blocks, it's a nonlinear relationship. So the shorter the time between blocks, the more incentive you have to join the biggest pool. And this essentially centralizes mining and it makes high-speed blockchains centralized and easier to censor and control by an adversarial government. That's the problem. It's an incentive structure issue. So human behavior will just sort of lead to the centralization, which then exposes itself as an attacker. And we're sharing this because one thing that a lot of people who are new to Bitcoin encounter is these altcoins coming up and saying, hey, I'm Solana. I can do blocks every, I don't know, six seconds, something. Very fast, very fast blocks. And the answer is, yeah, you can do that and it'll be unstable and centralized. Centralized. And eventually that's going to bite you. I always like whenever Solana comes up, because this is the one that's going to, you know, I think when the alt season returns, whenever the bull market comes back, eventually the alts will light up as they always do. And I predicted now on May 27th, 2022, Solana is going to be one of the ones that performs the best. It always, they just, they love dumping money into Solana. It's a scam. Solana uses a fake system to make it look like it has a much higher transaction volume than it really does because the consensus voting is done over the same channel that the transaction uh, settlement is done. So what they report as transactions is actually also in part consensus voting. And there is like four to six times the consensus voting traffic for one regular transaction. So it adds all of this fake transaction volume to the network that makes it look like Solana's processing so many transactions so fast, when in reality it's a single transaction that then causes a ton of voting and all of it's done over the same channel. So it just looks like it's transaction volume. Gosh, it's almost like they intentionally designed a system that doesn't work because they could use it to trick unsophisticated investors to putting their money into what's essentially a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, and it's almost like the VCs had them design it that way intentionally so that way they could get to market as fast as possible and get money from people while they were still rubes enough to fall for it. Well, I think we don't have anything more to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Solana! (laughs) Now, is Solana the Charles Hodgkinson? No, that's Cordana. Oh, okay. Yeah. So who's behind Solana? Who's the big brain? I don't know if I know of a particular founder because I, I, what I know of is like it's a group of VCs behind it, but there probably is some, some individual. They just don't make the, they're not like the public presence like Charles. Charles is always weighing in on every, you know, public discussion. Oh, okay. But Solana devs, little more low key. They also have a real nice developer presentation. You know, they, they've clearly like hired some people to help make their website look really accessible to developers. They've created some kits to help developers get started right away. Didn't your friend Dominic try something on Solana? He was looking at it. I think he ultimately decided not to, but that same that was why he kind of looked at several of them and Solana seemed to have like the best, if you're a developer, do these three things and then you can start minting NFTs. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's really appealing to people who want to basically utilize blockchain as, as almost like a library. Like I, I, my application's blockchain based and I'll just pull in the Solana stuff and that'll solve that because it's low transaction. Well, there's a lot of incentive to be able to say that because you can get one of these VCs to pay you to develop for their platform if you have some BS blockchain-enabled application. Yeah, well, and in some text circles, these VC names are like brands. They're like a good thing. You're like, oh, yeah, we're going to use this Solana project, which is backed by, you know, XYZ VC. And, oh, okay, yeah, we know that VC. Yeah, they've got, oh, okay, yeah, they've backed all kinds of things. 
You know, yeah. so it's almost like a brand vote of confidence, right? Exactly. And I think we've talked about this before, but the incentive models of VCs getting into crypto projects is essentially if a project produces a token, it's a way for a VC to essentially hump the value of that token through their media networks and their reputation, and then dump it on retail and exit before the project even needs to prove that it works. Yeah, and they're doing this before the SEC and others make it clear that these are all securities. Right. And then when the ruling comes down, you're going to get A16Z throwing up their hands and being like, oh, my God, we didn't know. The rules were so unclear. Oh, gosh. You know, because, yes, these look and smell and feel and taste like unregistered securities, but they were on a blockchain. So we were confused. We thought it was something completely different. Yeah, that made it decentralized because blockchain that's running on our centralized servers. Yeah. Or you're going to have the other thing like you have with Ripple where they just, we're going to fight. We're going to fight. Keep keep the faith. Keep investing. Keep buying it because we're going to fight the SEC and we're going to win. And they'll do that maneuver sometimes. Is too. that hashtag XRP army? Yeah, I think they're out there, man. It's hard, But it's hard to beat that hashtag lunatics. That was really good. No kidding. I think history is going to show us nobody is more crazy than the lunatics out there. They I think- are loony. <sighs> Woo. Now, on the subject of getting crazy, I'm sorry. I put in an energy article. So we're going to try to keep this one brief and tight, though, right? Just super tight. Although when you hear these kind of headlines, you don't, it feels like they're trying to induce panic. But multiple different uh, agencies and uh, research groups are saying, hey, we may have a serious, like never seen before power grid issue this summer. That seems bad. That sounds real bad. We are linking to a Vice article. I know. What are we doing? But it's basically a summary of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation's summer reliability assessment. And so they look at the, I want to say six grids in the United States, and they evaluate the grid stability in the summer when there is generally higher energy demand due to mainly air conditioning, I think. Yeah. And then also just the additional agriculture demands for like keeping the crops watered and cooled goes up substantially in places where it gets warmer. Right. And so the hotter it gets, the more energy is demanded to cool things off. And their assessment is that the Midwest and Western and Texas grids are looking very stressed and might have systemic risk of failure, mainly because temperatures are rising. Temperatures are rising. And they also acknowledge that we've made a substantial shift in our energy and that plays a role as well. So it's we are experiencing these early adopter, I guess you could call them speed bumps of switching to renewable energies, while at the same time we're experiencing higher temperatures and higher energy demand. And so we're trying to solve both problems that are incongruent. They compete with each other. And also the higher temperatures are generally associated with less rainfall, which means that hydropower, which is an important baseload power source, could become less reliable. And this destabilizes grids where hydropower is needed to provide base load. Yeah, like the West. (laughs) That's where most of our power comes from. Now, Washington, I think, is going to be all right. But in California, things are really a struggle. And so what California does is they then import energy from Nevada and Arizona and Texas, which then puts extra demand on those neighboring states. 58% of California's natural gas was retired since 2015. So they have lost 6,500 megawatts of generating capacity since 2015. And so they're importing the difference. And just to disclaim, we are not fossil fuel loving oil men over here. You did get that check from Shell Corporation though, right? Uh, Yeah, but they got my 
name wrong.、Oh. They called me the Bitcoin Dad. Oh yeah. Well, they know. You know, they know.、Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're absolutely not. And you know, you like I've said before on the show, how could you live in the Pacific Northwest and not love the environment? Oh yeah. I mean, so don't tell anyone. Pacific Northwest is the best. All that stuff about it raining all the time and not being sunny—it's actually a lie we、uh, propagate to keep Californians out. So if you're listening in California, just just turn it off. It's true, yeah. Yeah. No, actually, it's true. It's just it, we do. It does rain a lot. We just put up with it because when it's beautiful, it's so worth it. That's the truth. Also, once you embrace the rain in your heart, it's just nice. You're walking、yeah. through it. I've never seen anyone use an umbrella. No, not、Northwest. here. We just gave up years ago. You learn as a young lad or lass. Yeah, you give up. It does mean you're making these transitions. There's just realities. The dense, the energy density is lower, and that is exactly what California is suffering for. There's another element to this that we just have to acknowledge. When you look at the energy usage in California, I went and got the all the data on this before the show. Only 10% is like urban usage of the water. 10% is the people, and the vast majority of what the people are using is to water their lawns. But despite that, since 2015, per capita use has fallen to 146 gallons per day in response to drought-related conservation requirement. In fact, Californians have made incredible strides at reducing their personal water use.、Uh, they've also had mandatory water-saving technologies like low-flow toilets and showers that have been established. When you look at the data, California's since Since the '90s, have made substantial reductions in their water usage. So it's just now 10% of all of the water usage in California is actually people. The rest goes to industry, either agriculture or industry, or it goes to like government use for maintaining properties and land. Yeah, and I think that energy consumption has maybe not the exact same breakdown, but I think the majority of energy consumption is on the commercial level. So I think it's important to remember that when you're Listening to concerns about climate change, and there's this anxiety, like, "Oh my God, I need to change my behavior, reduce my energy footprint." You already have a small footprint. The real consumers are big old government organizations, companies, the U.S. military, law enforcement idling their car all day. I mean, these are the big consumers of energy, and they need to change. And pushing it all on individuals is a way to avoid the problem and just shame us instead of dealing with this on a societal level. So be informed on the topic. I think they've got us right. It's a guilt thing. We feel like we're all responsible, so we will take steps. And I. Can personally tell you exactly to the gallon how much water I use per week. I can also tell you to the watt how much power I use every week in my because I'm often running off grid, off of a tank, and off of solar, and I have to manage all of that. And I can tell you it's not a lot. There's really not much I could cut out. It's just the reality of it. And when you look at things like eight percent of all of California's water usage is just going to almonds, and almonds is a big export for California, so you could make an economic argument for it. They are delicious. But when all of the people are using ten percent for their homes, and almonds are using eight percent, something's got to be reevaluated. Maybe you shouldn't be growing almonds in the desert. Just a thought. Something right, and I know it's a big source of revenue. But I found research going back to the mid 2000s that was warning California that they were heading into a situation where they would not have enough water to power their hydro plant. So they've known this is coming for a long time, and they haven't solved the issue. I have nothing to add to that other than an aside about almonds. Are you aware that almond crops require a large amount of bee pollination to be profitable? I did not know this. No. And there's an interesting detail: almond honey that is produced when bees pollinate almond trees. It's either mildly toxic or just really disgusting. So all that honey has to be discarded. 
gross. That's probably a lot, not a clean job, I would imagine. Maybe they just let the bees eat the honey. I'm not sure because, you know, bees actually will just eat honey in the winter. But I think for commercial beehives, they move them around. So they never actually have a winter. They just sort right. of work all They're year round. They're working bees. Just as a double aside, isn't it interesting when you dig into any particular industry, you learn about all this crazy stuff that you never would have imagined from the outside? But then when you dig into it, you learn there's so many complexities to all of these. Uh, also, uh, there's just an, a phenomenal, a phenomenal amount of water used to make alfalfa. I was looking at the numbers there, but uh, alfalfa consumes the most water of any crop in California. 15% of the state's irrigation water is used just to farm alfalfa. Now, is that alfalfa being shipped to feed cows? Or Yeah, yeah. They're, in fact, like 15% or something, some huge percentage. I didn't get that number for the notes, but some huge percentage of all of the country's agriculture comes from California. So it's a massive business for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is another example of how factory farming is incredibly carbon, water, and energy intense because there is such a thing as sustainable beef. I eat sustainable beef from a local farmer. Hey, David, hope you're a listener. And it's really cool because this is a man who has some fields. The cows go in the field, they wander around, they eat, they poop, whatever. And, you know, he doesn't like coat the field shoulder to shoulder with cows, there's like a very small number of cows relative to the amount of land that they're grazing on. And as a result, there's this balance because their cow manure is adding nitrogen back into the soil. And, you know, it kind of, it all works out. And they also like, they'll move them around the field so that way the fields have time to recover. This is really sustainable. Whereas raising thousands of cows in a feedlot that's like hell on earth and then importing California alfalfa to feed them, this is not sustainable. No. And isn't there an irony that California tries to position themselves as one of the most environmentally conscious? They take the further steps. They make the most dramatic policies. They've taken some of the biggest sacrifices. They've impl implemented regulations that have changed the auto industry and all of this. But when you break down what actually makes them money, it's something that's completely unsustainable and it is draining their state of a precious resource. And yet they get to LARP as if they are some, you know, environmentalist state, when in reality, they're strip mining their state. And it's just it's funny because their reputation is the exact opposite. Well, it's complicated changing a whole economic system. So I see the, the challenges there. At the same time, the real joke is that when you price out buying a cow from your local rancher, you're not paying significantly more. I mean, it's basically a wash. The real cost is you have to buy a cow up front, so you need to have a, a chest freezer. You know, you're not going to get this meat on demand. You're going to have to talk to the farmer, give him a deposit. A couple months later, what's funny about dealing with farmers is they're generally not very tech savvy. So a couple months later, I'll get like a text message and it'll be like, come get your beef. And I've, I've like forgotten what it is. And I'm like, who's this? And I'll call and it'll be, oh, hey, David. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'll come over. That's so great. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that is a kind of a relationship that would have been common in my grandpa's day, I suppose you could say. You know, with supermarkets and all of that. We've been completely abstracted and everything's been created. Everything's an industry now and we're so removed from it. But another thought is, you know, if you buy a cow or half a cow. Now, you need to keep that freezer cold. And so if you're in a area with an unstable grid, it means you can't engage in that kind of sustainable process. You, you might have to build in power redundancy to your house, maybe a generator, maybe solar. Solar could run a freezer. I guess it would be okay for a freezer with grid to be backup. 
yeah. without power overnight. Because... Or just grid backup at night. Because even then, you know, you're like, if you could take eight hours off the grid, that's a nice, that's a nice little chunk. See, I think there is, that's where I could see solar really playing a role is individually on in on the individual home you could remove a lot of the load um, and it wouldn't take much for a lithium-ion solution at the home for storage it is it is just an insurmountable problem when you look at the amount of wattage and stuff you got to get into these batteries when you're storing at the grid but something like the tesla wall but cheaper is actually pretty practical i've been looking into building custom lithium solutions and you know if if you get the components yourself, you could build a battery wall that could run just about everything in a home for all night. You could probably build it if you did it yourself for around two grand. Right. But I mean, there's a lot of power going through that thing. So you'd have to be very careful and make sure that you have that in a place where if it goes up, it's not going to burn you down with it because lithium burns hot. And it burns and burns and burns and burns and burns. Yeah. But I could see it. I could see something where, you know, for somebody like me who self-hosts and I have a few servers too, I, if I could take those off of the grid and I could eat that a little bit with some solar, I'd do that. Also, you know, if you could sell that power back to the grid as well, there's a, you know, there's something there too to help make homes turn into little mini grid generators. I have a friend who did the Texas version of this. He bought some land in Texas where he owns all of the mineral and gas rights. I don't know if it was a closed oil well or if he dug his own well, but he basically dug into a natural gas vein and has his own natural gas fired generator on his property. And so he's connected to the grid, but whenever there's like a grid problem, he switches over and starts burning natural gas locally. That's so cool. That is nice. Yeah, actually, this was the first person who mentioned Nick's OS to me. Oh, I should knew. I need, I need to meet this guy. Off-grid property, Nick's OS user. It's my kind of guy. Yeah. I'm guessing early Bitcoiner, what with the whole buying, you know, 100 acres in Texas and <laughs> building his own generator and power plant. <laughs> that might have been a good use of those Bitcoin profits. Yeah. I don't think he uh, was uh, frittering it away on the Silk Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. And our last section is on privacy. Well, our last news section. Now, this is not a happy story. German officials are discussing or threatening to ban Telegram. And it's really a sad story all around because there is a concern in Germany around extremist political activity. Now, extremist is a charged term. Frankly, I'm kind of in a place where I think that at this point, terrorist just means someone who doesn't agree with you. Kind of like I don't. I feel like the word has kind of lost all meaning, and I feel like extremism is kind of getting close to that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's if you don't agree with me, you're yeah. That could be labeled that way. So it's not really clear what specifically is motivating this concern around quote unquote extremist movement or extremist content, but essentially. Telegram doesn't have a censorship policy, and the EU seems to be discussing banning end-to-end encryption. And so Telegram might be caught up in that if they don't agree to do moderation according to EU guidelines. This always feels like whack-a-mole to me, too, right? Um, because you take out Telegram, you take out Signal, something else comes. And the reality is is that they just care because it's gotten to a certain side. And once something gets popular enough, they go after And I think it really comes down to they want to be able to monitor it. And I think, I don't know, but I think a lot of this all kind of comes back to creating a digital cage for people. It all comes back to the same reason they would need financial surveillance. They want to, com they want to completely do digital surveillance. And there's a thousand reasons for it. It's not even like because 
some crazy evil world government conspiracy. In a lot of ways, it's because they just feel like they can better manage the population and, and, you know, keep track of stuff if they can just monitor everything. They just could manage it more and manage it better than we'd be even safer. That's what they think. I totally agree. I think that the real cure for social unrest is good policy. And sometimes that means that there is an incumbent favored group that needs to take a haircut and share a little bit of the cheese with the under the underclass, the Morlocks or whatever, who are cleaning the floors and keeping the lights on. And generally, the haves don't want to share with the have-nots. And I'm not saying this in some sort of like, oh, you know, communism, kumbaya kind of thing. I'm just talking about equitable economic systems that don't give certain groups unfair advantages. Let everyone succeed and fail on their own merits without advantage. And, you know, it's probably reasonable to have some sort of safety net in place so that people don't fail so hard that they cause trouble and, you know, end up homeless or anything like that. But um, I feel like there's kind of a, a theme where we see a lot of efforts by our current leadership class to implement things that would allow them to put the pressure on dissent. So the conversation that I'm hearing is not one of how do we solve these fundamental problems with energy, environment, equity, economy. Instead, the conversation is our management is about to work if only these poor people would stop complaining. So we need a tool to deal with them. Yeah, I think their actions betray their actual motivations here. Instead of crafting policy that addresses the social issues that would maybe explain or at least help reduce the amount of extremists that are supposedly being created, they're instead, in an absence of any plans for better policy, they're executing on plans for censorship and control. They realize this system's so screwed up, they're not going to make it any better because they're part of the problem. So instead, it's plan B. And plan B is total digital control and surveillance and anything that circumvents that or gets around that or, God forbid, even bucks the system publicly and and is proud that they're censorship resistant. Well, that can't really stand. And if it takes, you know, saying something about terrorism or if it takes saying something about the children, they'll do it. And I hate to be saying this, to be honest with you. I hate that it's gone this way. I've always known, you know, my whole life watching technology kind of initially be just a domain of the geeks watching the normies discover it, and then watching government begin to cope with it. I hope that they wouldn't do these types of things, these sort of worst-case scenarios, but over and over and over again, we see that if they can control it, if they can apply power, if they have any leverage, they use it. They take advantage of it. And Telegram's a good service. You know, I've been on the platform since the day it launched, and I've never been exposed to extremist content. Um, I've just had really good technical conversations with people on there for years and conversations with my friends and family. And one of those is conversations about my children that sometimes include like pictures of them in the bath or something like that. And I appreciate the fact that Telegram is secure and encrypted and that's not being blasted over, you know, the SMS networks. Hold on. Telegram is not encrypted. You can do destructed chats or whatever. Okay, so if you you change the defaults, you can create what's essentially similar to a signal chat. Where it self-destructs. Yeah, but the default settings in Telegram are not encrypted. So that's something to be aware of. And I think that kind of stuff is fine. Like I don't need, you know, like the JB group chat to be like this high security, super like secure system. But the, you know, if we're having a conversation about the kids, I like the idea that we can make a time destructed. And I think that's nice to have those options. And people just have private issues they want to discuss sometimes, medical things, family things, and they need the technology to serve them, not enslave. And so it's it's unfortunate to see a, a Western country go this route because I could see others following. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a great practice to generally try to 
have your communication self-destruct because we don't need to keep around this record. Think about all the conversations you've had. You remember things that are important. You, you don't go searching through your old conversations. Well, and what my wife and I and, and my kids do is we have two chats. We'll have like a muted chat that is that remains forever that we don't delete. And then we have more dynamic chats that are limited. And, you know, you just for that stuff, for the ephemeral stuff, you throw it in the, in the temporary chat. You start up a new temporary chat. You have a conversation. No big deal. It's easy. Right. And I think one theme with these targets of government suppression and censorship is that it's always a centralized platform that's being targeted. Telegram is a company. It's run out of Qatar. And so it can be targeted with sanctions or laws or whatever. Bitcoin is decentralized. And if Bitcoin wasn't decentralized, it would have already been shut down. So certain things make sense to decentralize because then they are less fragile in response to censorship and attack. Now, this is why we've talked about peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchanges before like HODL, HODL, and BISC. And I found an article that actually has a much larger list of peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchanges, including some that I have not heard about, such as Agora Desk, never heard of that, BitQuick. RoboSats is on here, which is an interesting kind of peer-to-peer -peer lightning exchange, which seems very exciting. I can't wait to try that out. That's the number one number one on my list to try right now. We've we've heard from uh, I mean at least a handful of people that have either sent in a boost or said something to Matrix that they're trying. It describes itself as a simple and private way to exchange Bitcoin for national currencies. It simplifies peer to peer user experiences and uses Lightning to hold invoices to minimize custody and trust requirements. Sounds good. Sounds real good. That does sound good. That's a nice list. Yeah. So check it out and let us know if you try any of those services. I'm not going to recommend any of them because I haven't tried them all. I've tried BISC and HODL HODL, but, and I think they generally seem to work. And we're going to have a follow-up episode on BISC, hopefully not too long, because I have my new BISC setup going after I failed hard with my old one. And my new setup is tinfoil hat level paranoid. Ooh, okay. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I decided to put BISC onto that Cubes OS machine I mentioned to you. That sounds perfect. That's like, <laughs> I love it already. Yeah, Cubes OS is a Linux distribution that has a built-in hypervisor. And so a hypervisor is a piece of software that's very good for creating virtual machines, virtual computers. Isolated from each other. So Cubes OS is basically a system of networked virtual computers. So it's very good for creating applications that don't talk or interact with any other applications. Very good for security. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you have a, maybe software that you don't trust, it could be good for that as well. It's such a neat project. You just Google search Cubes OS. Yeah, very cool. I think a lot of Bitcoin exchanges use cubes to handle private keys. Oh, man. You could do a whole show dedicated to the back-end infrastructure of these things if they'd ever tell you. But I bet you some of these exchanges are wild on the back-end because these blockchains could be a lot of resource-intensive stuff to run. You know what we should do is we could probably get a good interview from a hacker. So reach out if you have penetrated any exchanges, even a small one. Uh, give us a call. See if uh, we can maybe have a conversation about how you did that, what the infrastructure was like. You know, that might be an interesting conversation. Give us a call at 1-800-BOOST. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> boost. Give us a call. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if we had the dad line in here? Yeah. Ring, ring, ring. We, 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 would, we would get some missed dials, I think. It would be like, 
hello, is this a radiology clinic? No, no. I think we'd get those spammers that we get in Matrix that like want to sell us some crap coin or something. Got that I know. The other day. It's always like about Joe the whale and he gives these great signals. Yeah. Yeah. He's got great tips. Yeah. I think it's time for an ad read. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. This is the Linux show about self-hosting with the two handsomest hosts in the Linux space. Well, at least one of them. <laughs> Wait. But the other I'm not one, sure which one? Yeah, well, and the other one has a great British accent, so you should definitely <laughs> check it out. It's a show about hosting your own media server, controlling your home IoT devices That's with mm-hmm. a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Sure. And essentially, if you get into this hobby, you will have endless excuses to buy more electronic stuff. Run away from your problems by spending time alone tinkering with computers. There's also a fun community, so you can procrastinate together, having fun with yeah. There's there's companionship in that home lab. That's right. Selfhosted.show. Or look for the Self-Hosted Show in your podcast app. Which brings us to Bitcoin education. Now, today's Bitcoin education piece is a description of what could be the perfect BIP. The Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. That's what BIP is. Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. The perfect BIP, you say? And I think that perfect BIP award might go to Gloria Zhao. So Gloria has been working on the mempool. The mempool is the pool of transactions that your node maintains. So when people want to send a Bitcoin transaction, their wallet connects with a node that then shouts to the network, hey, there's this transaction. This address wants to send something to this address. Now, mempools are really interesting and complicated because essentially you're running a computer that's saying, hey, if you send me data in this format, I'll hold it. And so you could imagine that actually you could do a lot of malicious things to a Bitcoin node via its mempool. You could shout a lot of garbage transactions that might knock it offline or something like that. So the mempool is really tricky because it's this important institution almost for the Bitcoin network to work. And when we say mempool, we mean every node has a mempool. There's no single mempool, but it's also this attack surface. And so making changes to the mempool potentially opens up the Bitcoin network to vulnerabilities. Now, what Gloria has done is she has a BIP for something called package relay. And the idea is that you sometimes run into problems because there might be a transaction that's stuck in the mempool. And so you can actually boost the fee so that it gets mined by sending another transaction with a higher fee rate that kind of gives a bigger reward to the miner, but only if they mine both transactions. Now, the problem is in times of congestion, sometimes the mempool purges lower value transactions. So your lower value transaction might get purged from some mempools, but not from others. It's complicated. So package relay is a way to put a couple transactions together in a package and send it out to the network and say, hey, please don't throw away this low value transaction, but consider all of the transactions in this relay to be part of the same group. So this seems like kind of an obvious thing to do, right? Well, it turns out you're opening yourself up to massive denial of service attacks when you do this. But there are ways to mitigate it, and Gloria is working on that. And this is a proposal that has actually been in discussion for about 10 years since the beginning. So Package Relay is non-controversial. Everybody wants it, and it's just a little tricky. 
So this is what I mean when I say it's the perfect BIP. Oh, and it's also perfect because it directly helps Lightning Network right now. I love that. The security assumptions around Lightning Network can fail if you cannot post your justice transaction. So you're saying Lightning, the Lightning Network will make an assumption about the state of the Bitcoin layer. The layer two makes an assumption about the layer one, which can sometimes on occasion be wrong. That's correct. I don't know if I've ever heard of this attack being executed, but there is a theoretical attack where Chris and I have a Lightning channel and we're transacting. And at some point, there is a, a point in the channel where I have most of the funds. But then we continue transacting and, you know, I've paid Chris for a bunch of stuff. Now he has most of the funds. Now I notice that there's a lot of congestion on the Bitcoin blockchain. And I also notice that when we open this channel, I cheaped out and opened it for a one sat per byte fee. So it's a very low fee transaction, but the network is very congested right now, very busy. So now I take that old state where I had most of the funds in the channel and I broadcast that. So basically I close the channel and I take most of the funds back. Basically I'm, I'm rolling back the history of our lightning channel and I'm stealing from Chris. Now he has a time lock. He has a, a window to issue a justice transaction where he takes all the funds back and he enforces the security inherent in the Lightning Protocol. But if that justice transaction doesn't have a high enough fee, it might not make it into the mempool and get mined and I might succeed in stealing the channel. So Package Relay fixes this. And I see that's why it's particularly bad during congestion because you, you've got higher fees potentially and you've got a lot going on in the mempool. So if, you, if, you, if your justice transaction has too low of a fee, it's potentially going to lose out. And so how does Package Relay solve that by saying take this really low fee and combine it with these other transactions and just look at it as one? Exactly. So what you could do is actually have all justice transactions or channel closed transactions have zero fee. And then when you need to get that mined, you send that transaction and you package it with a child pays for parent transaction that pays the fee on the first one. And you put them together in a package and you send it out. And now, you know, you've got a, a competitive fee transaction there. Boy, anything that involves child paying for parent, I'm all for. <laughs> Let's go. Bada bing. <laughs> Dad joke. And that brings us to our final section, feedback. Remember, you can get in touch at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Now, our feedback this week comes in the form of boosts. Pew, pew. I normally don't read the amounts, but do you okay. think that we should read the amounts? Well. Holy toot. Cardinerd. There is a... A school of thought that it encourages. I'm okay, because then Awesome Matt can know that Cardinard likes us more than he does. <laughs> sorry. Oh. sorry, sorry, Awesome Matt. And you know, Cardinard's a Cardano person, I believe, as we established on a previous episode. He, so. might, he might be compromising us. I mean, I'm just saying, I think, it's, I think it's big of a Cardano person to be supporting a Bitcoin podcast. I think it shows a little open-mindedness. Uh, I know, because we're always punching on down on Richard Hodgkinson. Charles. Charles, sorry. Charles. Charles. I was, you know what? I was confusing him with Richard Hart. Okay. Who's, which is not his real name, who is the hex scammer. Oh, okay. And right. Richard Hart has one of the most toxic Twitter feeds. He actually made a joke where the Luna Foundation guard only had, I don't know, $8 million of Bitcoin left after their failed attempt to defend the Terra peg. And Richard Hart was like, hey, that's funny because my collection of expensive wristwatches is worth $10 million. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he's always doing this thing where he's like, look at my watch. Now go buy some Hex. 
Look at my Lamborghini. Now look, now go buy some hex. <laughs> Jeez. It's the worst. So uh, Awesome Matt, four days ago, for a thousand sats, says gun control has led to the solution of 3D printing them. Similarly, a social media crackdown will likely catalyze its replacement. I think I agree to an extent. I think it'll take longer with social media because of the momentum with something like the legacy media, using it as such a source of truth. But I, I do see it. I already see it fractioning now. Really, It's already happened. Yeah. I mean, I support the fracture of social media. I think that Matrix is a great fractured, smaller community type of social media. I think that's much healthier. I don't really have an opinion about 3D printing guns. I think it's complicated because, I mean, you can say, look, if you 3D print a gun, you have to register it, but it's information. It's knowledge. The The CAD file to do that is basically First Amendment protected. So if you want to stop that activity, you're going to potentially break free speech in the process. Yeah. I mean, you could try, you know, and maybe this is already happening. You could try to solve it with some DRM, but that's only going to be so successful. Though you can just say, look, you can make it, but you have to register it. And then it becomes an unregistered thing. And that's a crime. Okay, done. Our next boost, 5,000 sats from Petar. Petar? That's how I say it. Okay. And he was listening to Cynically Saving the Children. I stumbled across this Bitcoin show from Chris's Clips. So glad I did. You guys rock. Hey, thanks, Petar. Very nice. Yeah. The, yeah I, I, every week I see some Bitcoin dad pod clips on there. So thank you people who do clip it. And I did it. I, I, was, I thought just a couple of points last week. They deserved to be on their little standalone clip. Oh, thank you. I tried to clip, but my app doesn't really work so great on Graphene OS, I guess. I've had some crashes with the clipping. Yeah. I've had some crashes. All right. Well, uh, Carter Nerd uh, boosts in with uh, 15,000 sats, which is pretty awesome to go. And wow. just to say pizza. And I think he's referring to Bitcoin Pizza Day. That's right. So this is a Bitcoin holiday, and it celebrates the famous transaction where Laszlo bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin each or 10,000 for both. I... I... I think the story is 10,000 for both, but the way it gets told online is it's 10,000 for one. But either way, it's 10,000 Bitcoin for pizza. But it did mark a very historic moment. And also um, is sort of like the uh, perfect example of a Bitcoin long timer, you know? Yeah. We had a meetup in Seattle, a Seattle Bitcoin meetup, where we discussed a new proposal for multisig called Musig, which is multisig using Taproot. And there were a bunch of OG Bitcoiners there. So at the back of my head, I'm always thinking like, oh man, I'm going to meet some sort of closet down low, super rich dude. But no, being an early Bitcoiner just means that you have so many regrets because you spent 10,000 Bitcoin on a pizza you spend 32 Bitcoin on a trucker hat. I mean, so many regrets. Just people don't save things that don't have value. Like that's not natural for most people. Right. Yeah. These things were just so, so low value. And the whole, like I said before, the whole culture was around proving that you could use it for online sales because it was going to be the money of the internet. And that's only going to work if you use it to buy stuff. Right. Yeah. That's too bad that it wouldn't save more. I actually think ultimately we'll get a little bit back to it. I think once we start, I think what's going to happen is people will start thinking of Bitcoin in sats relative to one US dollar, perhaps. That'll be a transition. So we'll start talking about like, you know, what is it? 3,800 sats is about a dollar right now. That's how we'll start talking talking about it one day. And when we get to that point, people will start spending it again. I just paid for, I just bought something arbitrary with Bitcoin online the first, for the first time in a very long time. But it, I bought the Bitcoin with Strike and then I immediately spent the Bitcoin using the QR code scanner. And I could see doing that for a long time. I yeah. have no problem just holding some sats and using them from time to time to buy Well, you stuff. also save yourself a taxable event because if right. you buy it and then sell it, there's no capital gains or whatever they're 
the IRS wants you to report. Our next boost is two, 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 two sats from the Golden Dragon. I ah, love this name. Nice. That's a row of ducks. Is the Golden Dragon? Yeah, if you look at it, it's kind of like a row of, of rubber oh, duckies. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. I, and I was thinking like maybe the Golden Dragon could be represented by like a row of ducks because it's like a Chinese dragon, maybe. Hmm. Uh, wow, this is getting deep. I love this name because I recently watched the last season of Doctor Who with the first uh, female doctor, Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, the first season with her kind of had, I think the writing was weak, but it it got better. And it ended really well. And there was this evil character called the Grand Serpent. And so whenever I see Golden Dragon, I always think of the Grand Serpent. (laughs) (laughs) And he writes in, quack. Oh, I guess that's the row of ducks. The thread that Vitalik has was very alarming and did sound like a cry for help. I do often wonder if ETH will just crash within a year. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, there are network effects, and ETH has definitely built a community around it. At the same time, you know, we've been looking at it from a technical perspective for a long time and scratching our heads because it seems like a real dumpster fire. There is that. It does, like, when you look at the amount of uh, dApps and the amount of money people are holding in Ethereum, it's still, like, so much bigger than all of the Ethereum killers like Phantom and Cordano and those that come after it. So it still has a good four or five-year lead. So if they don't blow up the transition to proof of stake and the other ETH 2.0 initiatives, if they don't blow all that up and if Vitalik doesn't freak out and panic and leave, like he seems to be going through some kind of crisis, I think it's got minimum five years, potentially 10 years before this thing has really uh, gone sideways just because there's so much momentum. There are obvious black swan events, everything from Vitalik, something happening untimely to Vitalik to the SEC saying, no, we've decided actually Ethereum is a security. Like those kinds of things could happen, but I don't know. I think Ethereum's biggest problem is itself. Um, what I can remember, I don't know, I want to say six years ago, they were talking about a transition to proof of stake and they were talking about how it was going to be in the fall or it was going to be in the summer. And they've, they've failed to execute on that. They failed to get the, the gas fees down. Um, the biggest thing that the platform is used for is NFT minting, which is collapsing right now. So uh, these things could change. But uh, if I were going to bet on only two things in the crypto space, it'd probably be Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, I think just because there's so much um, large institutional momentum around Ethereum, too. And they love all the stupid derivatives and all the little games they can play in, in uh, DeFi. And that is not a vote of confidence in Ethereum. I think that's more a recognition that we are involved in some very cutting edge, very speculative stuff. It's tempting to say that, oh, Bitcoin's been around for 10 years and therefore it's solid. It's like gold or something. No, this is a giant experience experiment, everybody. And Ethereum, what worries me about it, I mean, not worries, I don't care, but proof of stake and all of the risks that that entails, like Chris said last week, it's a political decision. They're not doing it for any technical reason. They're doing it for marketing, for politics, to give the insiders who own most of the Ethereum more control over the network. So they're taking risk and there's no reward that makes Ethereum better. It's just assisting one group inside Ethereum to be richer and more powerful. The calculation there is that if they become, you know, the blockchain of the establishment with proof of stake, which is what it is, we are currently living in a proof of stake economy. How do you like it so far? Because that's exactly what's going to happen with Ethereum. And I think the thinking is, is that we'll become the Silicon Valley safe blockchain. We'll, be, we'll become, you know, like I said last episode, the, the diet version, the fat-free version of blockchain that's safe and risk-free for you to use and promote. Fat-free, no-sugar blockchain. Yeah, and don't you even worry about the environmental impact because we switched over to proof of stake, so isn't everybody happy? Yeah. 
Uh, so I think those kinds of cynical things, plus just the fact that human greed makes us do things that are dumb for longer periods of time than we should otherwise, will stretch things out. Don't know what it means for price action. Hudson boosts in 5,000 sats three days ago. He says, love getting to hear more of me on the Bitcoin topics in general. Just found out about the show from a recent JB episode. Thanks for all you guys are doing for the community. Well, thanks for joining us over here, Hudson. Yeah, thanks so much, Hudson. Our next boost is from Red Green Refactor. Wow, what a great name. Oh, gosh. And that's 500 sats. This is my first boost. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I think someone should write a sci-fi novel about Satoshi being a time traveler that invented Bitcoin in order to save us from some impending financial and societal collapse. You know what? I could see it. Honestly, I want to see a movie or a TV show that accurately depicts Bitcoin. There was recently a South Korean movie about this guy who gets thrown in jail and then he comes out eight years later and the South Korean currency has collapsed and now the, the economy's dollarized and they all are like trying to get dollars and bank heist or whatever. But I think that movie would have been so much better with Bitcoin. Totally, totally. If anyone is making a movie or whatever about Bitcoin, send us a boost. We can consult so you get the details right. None of that matrix background, you know, green type falling down the screen, you know, oh, he's hacking, you know. Oh. Hacking is like sitting quietly at a computer and occasionally cursing for like four days. Right. Yeah, this is, you just need a good technical consulting team. Uh, this is uh, this is a service the Bitcoin Dad Pod is happy to offer. You just got to get it. I, I could see it, too, if we ever got down the road 10 years or so and Bitcoin's, you know, a million bucks or something. You could see there would be all of a sudden just this enormous amount of interest. And I would imagine the streaming services, if they're still around, which I'm sure they will be, would probably have all kinds of documentaries. And probably most of them are going to be garbage. <laughs> but I'll probably watch all of them. <laughs> no, it's funny. I actually wrote a concept for a Netflix show that involved Bitcoin and natural gas. And there was a ironic political thriller dimension to it, but I had to can it because of world events. I mean, you just scrap that part and pitch it to him. Come on, we'll turn Bitcoin dad pot into a video production house, getting them Netflix money. The idea was that it was kind of going to be a commentary on the petrodollar system, but... Yeah, maybe we could rework it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Cost Plan comes in with uh, 3690, again with the Tesla numbers, and just says, uh, thanks for the show. Nice and simple. 3690 is a Tesla number? I believe it is. I always think of the NVIDIA cards, but I think, and Cost, you could boost it again and remind me, but I, I think uh, he says it's a Tesla number system. Oh, cool. Well, I, yeah. thanks for the boost. People got systems for their sats. And our next boost, 500 sats from Crypto Coach BTC. Keep it at altcoins, gents. Otherwise, it is unfair to ships and sheep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We were debating last week because we didn't want to call them S-coins just so we could make it family friendly. And it also sounds so dismissive. And then, yeah, ship and sheep coins. And I think we did stick with alt ultimately. It seems like alts would stick. I know. The it only makes thing them, it gives them more credibility than exactly. they deserve. Exactly. That's the problem. When I say altcoin, it's not clear that my voice is dripping with disdain and sarcasm. Yeah, it just makes it sound like it's an alternative. Right. That's, there's, there's no alternative. There's no alternative. There are other cryptocurrencies with more or less legitimacy, but there's no alternative to Bitcoin. Come on. Come on. Come on. So Get it together, alts. It's, it's, still, not a, it's still not great, but the English language and such. OSPF uh, boosted in with 1337 sats. Leet sats. Yeah. Uh, and said, I was one of the guys who requested this in the Matrix a while back, so thanks so much for making the episode. I think he's talking about the uh, self-custody stuff. One question I have. If you're utilizing a phone wallet, say Blue Wallet or Samurai Wallet, and something, 
maybe a wild EU regulation, forces the app to be delisted from the App Store, are there other avenues to recover your coin? Maybe I'm listening to too much Coda Radio, but I don't trust Apple or Google with their App Store. This is a great, this is my fear as well. Now, of course, there are things like on Android, like F-Droid, where you could probably load it through F-Droid. Oh, totally. There's side loading on Android, so you have that as an option as well. But he's using Castomatic, so he's probably on, on iOS. iOS. Yeah. I mean, so when Apple has removed an app from the App Store so far, with one exception of due to malware, they have not removed the apps from phones. So you still have it on your phone if they remove the apps. But that would be a point at which you'd probably want to transfer it to like a sparrow on the desk. Right. And the great thing about Bitcoin wallets is what a Bitcoin wallet is, is it's just software that's like a, a castle around a gigantic number, which is your private key. And every wallet, like Blue Wallet or Samurai, they make you write down your seed phrase. Now, you can take that seed phrase and you can put it into another wallet and it will regenerate that private key and then go and find your Bitcoin and and list the balance in your wallet. Now, you may need to take an additional step if you're moving from, say, Blue Wallet to Sparrow Wallet on the desktop or Electrum on the desktop, and that is finding your wallet's derivation path. Essentially, the seed phrase is enough to recreate the private key, but generating the sub-private keys and public keys that are your addresses, what's happening is, and this may be incorrect, so if we have a cryptographer in the audience, please correct me. But the way I think about it is that these numbers, these private keys, they're hiding out there in infinity. Infinity is infinite. And so these numbers are out there in this infinite sea of numbers. And then they generate sub-keys. And these sub-keys are also hiding in infinity. So you need to know the path. There's this derivation path that tells you how to generate these addresses. And some wallets use different paths. So there's a website called walletsrecovery.org. And you can use that website to find your derivation path if you have trouble importing your seed phrase. Yeah, you just nailed it. I was just going to make sure we made that disclaimer so people can understand. So it's not a not always 100% universal that a seed phrase in one wallet will work in another wallet, but you can find ones that you can. And walletsrecovery.org, which we'll put a link in the notes, will help you figure that out. I think, too, like while I think this is definitely something to stay vigilant about app stores removing the app, it is an issue that these developers are very much aware of, and they're trying to avoid that kind of situation. And generally, there's a news article and like, oh, this app's getting removed and you as a user have time to respond. But I do think it's worth considering it as a, as a risk vector of keeping too much wealth on a mobile device. I think when you get above a few hundred dollars, you should start asking yourself, is this worth getting something like a cold card? And then, you know, five, 10 years, maybe that couple hundred dollars you put on there is worth a couple grand. Who knows? Right. And so maybe you start identifying a threshold in which you're no longer comfortable losing that amount. And that's the amount you move off and put it on a cold card or something like that. I think that's great advice. Maybe think about sitting down and just writing down what are the limits to the level of security. So how much are you willing to you know, lose if you lose your phone? You know, maybe that's a couple hundred bucks. How much are you willing to lose if you lose your laptop? Because generally, I imagine you, you carry it around less. It's probably safer at home. You know, maybe that's a couple hundred to a thousand bucks. And then, you know, do I want to invest in a hardware wallet? Because a hardware wallet is pretty easy to secure. You can put it, you know, I don't know, under a mattress, though you'd probably lose it. Don't do that. In a safety deposit box, in a safe or something. Maybe in a maybe in a fake book in a bookcase. I don't know. Yeah. A, a fake rock outside. <laughs> Not outside. <laughs> no, Not okay. outside. I just got I was getting excited. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, just kind of plan for the future because essentially you don't want to be scrambling when you have to transfer your Bitcoin or have a new wallet. You don't want to be rushed. It's much better to plan ahead, you know, take five minutes today to think about it and your, your future self will thank you. That right there is one of the best tips I think you can get from a, a longtime Bitcoiner is do it when you're in the right state of mind, when things are chill, when you have the patience and not all of us can always get there. But try to do it before it's too late. And uh, what I do, and my wife and I, we just talk about this, is every now and then I just say, hey, I'm going to take a couple hours this evening and I'm just going to go over everything, check everything. You know, she does her own thing and I do my own thing. I, it's like it's tending to our finance. Yeah, actually, when I um, when I uh, burned myself with my multi-sig debacle where I lost some coin, uh, that was actually the day before a trip. I was hurrying to get something in place because I was going somewhere and I, I didn't want to kind of leave my setup the way it was when I was traveling. And that rush really hurt me. So don't let it hurt you. Because, the you know, the thing about Bitcoin is if it's your own keys on your own wallet, there is never a rush. It's either lost or it's not lost. Now, if it's on an exchange, that's not your Bitcoin yet. So I would say hurry, hurry and get that. But once it's on your own wallet, it's yours. This weird thing called public-private key cryptography is protecting it. It's weirdly asymmetric defense. It's just impossible to get unless you've already lost that key. So just slow it down. Don't rush. Yep. And uh, we have another boost from OSPF. I wonder what that stands for. I'm thinking like Osprey or that PF makes me think of... uh, Yeah, or open source protocol or something like that. Like It sounds like a networking term too to me. PF makes me think of PFSense, that firewall. Sure. Sure, packet filter could be open source packet filter. Ah, we uh, might have a network guy could or be, girl. Could be open shortest path first. You know, it could be, I don't know. We'll okay. get a, maybe we can find out. Boost us in, let us know. Okay, and so he sends another leet boost, 1337 sats, listening to episode 14, Can't Spell Stagflation Without Oil and Gas. I'm still proud of that name. <laughs> Thanks for sharing these dope Lynn Alden articles. Yes, Lynn is dope. I initially came here to learn more about BTC slash crypto, but I am loving in capitals. The economics talk to take this boost and put it towards bribing Lynn to join you for an episode. Hey, thanks. Love that idea. That is a great idea. Yeah. And I love the idea of when a guest like Lynn comes on, throw her a split. Oh, yeah. That would be cool. All right. So True Grits calling me out. Fair enough. The boosts are for all things. Uh, He says, I heard Chris admit on the Linux Unplugged live stream recently that he's been dabbling in ETH with a credit card. Why not dabble in Monero? You know, running a node and doing a bit of the mining with with a P2 pool. Uh, If you want help, just let me know. Well, that's very nice of you, Grits. Thank you. So that's a funny story. So I got myself, you know, a Gemini, the Gemini Exchange. They have a credit card. And I got myself this credit card for our summer gas expense. And the perk is, is you get a percentage back in crypto. And I assumed the default was Bitcoin. But the default, I believe, I could be wrong, or maybe I selected it, but the default is Ethereum. So I went to go look at my rewards to see what I got on my my last trip where I just got my RV fixed up. Because I thought, okay, I'm going to have like, you know, some Bitcoin in here. It's going to be great. And I opened it up. (laughs) <laughs> on the live stream and looking on my phone <laughs> and it's sent to ethereum <laughs> so now i've got now i've got like a handful of ethereum on the gemini exchange that i never wanted in the first place uh so that's why i didn't do monero i don't even know if it might offer monero i don't think uh, Monero's on the gemini exchange yeah i wouldn't it has to be a currency and so i looked and they do support bitcoin so it's set to bitcoin now <laughs> but these you know and basically my thought was is credit card points, especially for fuel, have pretty much all disappeared. So why not get a little Bitcoin back when I'm uh, spending all this money on fuel? 
Yeah, that seems reasonable. Now, it's funny because Gemini has actually made you into an altcoiner. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> you hadn't messed with Ethereum no. before that, I don't think. Oh, no, I had, I had somebody had sent me Ethereum at one point, so I have a little bit, but like, I don't know what to do with it other than just put it into an Ethereum wallet or something. Like, what am I going to do with it? I could leave it on the exchange because it's only like, it's literally like six bucks. It's not like a lot of Ethereum. I don't know. Maybe I should stake it somewhere. <laughs> well, we actually talked about this a little with that article we shared last week about starting your own local trading group. So if you are doing peer-to-peer Bitcoin trading and someone wants to send you hmm. Ethereum, you know, what you have to do is just do the math on the gas fees and everything and, you know, give give that person a price that takes into account your costs so that you can just take that Ethereum and transfer it into Bitcoin or whatever you want. You know, so don't get, uh, don't get religious when it comes to... Uh, you know, getting things done. I mean, I should just hodl it forever. What if uh, Ethereum gets up to five grand? Or $140,000. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. That was such a joke. I get it. I get people want to see these big gains on these altcoins. But you're right. The, the, right, the smart thing to do would be to sell it and uh, put that in a Bitcoin. That's the way to go. Yep. But you got me, True Grits. You got me. Well, I don't know if he knows this, but I actually have a Monero node. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I fired one up to when I interviewed Seth for privacy. And he even sent me a little Monero, clearly attempting to bribe me. But I got him because I sent him lightning right back. And after it failed three <laughs> times, it finally went through. Oh, lightning. And then I let him know. I was like, Seth, there you go. That you, You've got lightning now. Now you can no longer talk crap about lightning. And he replied and said, thanks for bankrolling my pro Monero campaign. So he foiled me again. He, that guy. You know, he might be onto something, though, because I do have to admit, it is appealing the idea I could mine my own Monero a little bit, you know, and then have that as a little spending money. I find that appealing. And I love running nodes. So I, I could see myself setting up a Monero node just to help the network out. Oh, Seth has a beautiful little Docker container that uh, boots up a Monero node. And right. nice. the Monero wallet has a great GUI. It can connect to your own node or a remote node. I mean, it is, or even run a local node on your computer via the GUI. It's very good software, in my opinion. All right, I got to check this out. Oh, is it me next? Yes. And we have 500 sats from Crypto Kyle. He was listening to Cynically Saving the Children. Excellent episode. I disagree with the idea that electric trucks do not fit a use case for delivery vehicles that face constant stop and go motion and short haul sub 100 mile deliveries. They would have less wear and tear than dyno powered. And the nature of the work lends itself well to the electric use case. It would help if there was less regulatory capture for rail since any distance over 500 miles should be rail. But that was captured long ago. You know where I could see this, Kyle, working out too is if, and they'd have to do this, right? But if when the trucks came back for the evening, they all just pl plugged in and charged overnight. I think what I was getting at is that the weight of the battery increases with the weight of the vehicle. The more load it needs to be able to carry. Right, because the vehicle always has to carry the battery as opposed to diesel fuel where it burns the diesel as it goes. So it sort of reduces its weight over time and the fuel itself is more energy dense than a battery. But I think what Kyle is identifying is that the current standard in the U.S. to use trucks over highways for all supply chain it's just really a terrible idea. And it's kind of a result of lobbying by the auto industry and a lack of investment in infrastructure. So I think he has a good point that if we had a more sort of rational infrastructure plan with that leverage, the right technology for the job, there could be a place for these electric vehicles. Yeah, it's just using the right technology the right way. 
That really, it is it's just, we're just so bad. Uh, Bafu, Bafu, Bafu writes in with a 10,000 satyr uh, just 20 hours ago for an early episode, episode five. And uh, Bafu asks, it seems like Bitcoin's holding steady at 30K. Do we consider that a good sign? I think it's below 30K now, but your Bitcoin dad and Chris are not traders. We're hodlers. So I wouldn't read too much into it. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty right now in the economy. Some people think that we're clearly in a recession. Some analysts who do a lot of study of leading indicators think that this looks like kind of a dip, uh, but not a recession. So I think that a lot of things could happen and that the financial system in general is just getting more and more fragile as financial repression wears on. And that means that we're just, you know, basically what financial repression does is it suppresses volatility into, into, in the short run. But the thing is, financial volatility is, it's sort of like a force of nature. So you can compress a, strain, a spring, you can push it together, but eventually your hands will get tired and it will pop out. And this is what financial repression does, in my opinion. This is also an opinion sh shared by Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book called Black Swan about things like this. So I think that it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but please don't take leverage. Please just protect yourself from that volatile downside risk. You know, and you're seeing volatility show up in areas that we haven't seen it before in the market, like with nickel there for a little while and copper and oil and stock prices and recession or not a recession. I think that's kind of a moot point. I think what we know is that the Fed is engaged in a monetary policy where assets are going to take a hammering for a while. And so if you go to something like TradingView or CoinMarketCap and you zoom out for six months and you look at it, what you will see, go back to November, really. What you will see is sideways price action, bad news, price drop. Sideways price action where we hold that level, bad news comes, price drop. Sideways price action, bad news comes, price drop. And that's what's gotten us to where we're at now. And we've been in this price action since November. And that happens to just coincide with the beginning of the change of the Fed monetary policy. And they've said that they're going to continue to push this. They have, uh, I would bet, if I were a betting man, I'd bet at least two more rate hikes, maybe another 100 basis points total. And it's going to happen over the next two meetings that they're going to. And Bitcoin will respond negatively to that. I hope. My hope is that the price goes down even more because all of the fundamentals are better than ever. It's a solid asset and it is a victim of the macro policy, just like all other assets are. And so I wouldn't bet on 28 holding. It's possible, especially if we got some really positive news, like a large corporation, a nation state, some large adopter that's going to drive a lot of demand. You could actually see the price turn around already. But the absence of that, it's a victim to the macro. The macro is going to continue through the summer, I would imagine, the bad situation. So I, I don't think 28 is going to hold. I don't know how low it's going to go, but it's definitely not a time to leverage. I'd say, if anything, if you want to get in, it's a time to DCA. It's a time to cash average. So that way you average out some of the volatility. My personal preference is once it gets below 30, that's buy-in season. And if it gets down to the mid-20s, you know, then you start you start thinking, could I, could I, could I somehow get some cash together and make a decent size? Just as my personal outlook on it. There's a metric called the Mayor Multiple, which is the current Bitcoin price over the 200-day moving average. And this is considered a pretty historically useful sign of overbought or oversold conditions in Bitcoin. With the exception of like twice ever, that's been the, the absolute floor of the price. Twice ever, Bitcoin's, I believe, broken through that 200-day uh, moving average price. That tends to be our floor. 
Right. So as that mayor multiple gets closer or below one, I think we're below one actually right now, which is generally speaking, historically, that would probably would have been a good time to buy. I think that buying on the lows is something that people like to do. And it makes life easier in a sense, because you don't have like, you don't buy at 69 and then it goes down to 30 and then you just feel like such an idiot. So buying on the lows has that advantage. At the same time, Everyone who bought the last high in 2018, or was it 2017, when it, when it briefly kissed 20K, felt like an idiot for years, and now they look like geniuses today. So I wouldn't worry about it. I think the important thing is not to get over your skis and uh, wreck yourself by getting too, too excited and, and taking leverage and suddenly you know discovering that you need to make a margin call or you borrowed money or you did something kind of reckless. So I think the important thing is to take it easy. Because Bitcoin's cool, at the same time, it's not going to solve every problem. Most people aren't going to retire on their Bitcoin gains. It'll be nice, but they need a job. They're going to just something to think about. Yeah. And, you know, um, some people believe the bear market for Bitcoin is going to be here until 2024 when the next happening. And then that's where. So you don't like like dad saying, you don't want to get over your skis. You don't want to you don't want to you don't want to like blow all your money now. And then, you know, we're still at this low price point in a year and everybody's given up hope and you feel like an idiot because that could be the situation. Then again, I think it's much more likely that when the Federal Reserve changes policy, probably after the credit market blows up or another market blows up, then big money is going to go risk on like crazy again. And when they go risk on again, you're going to see tech stocks shoot up and you're going to see Bitcoin. Um, it's just a matter of when that happens, in my opinion. It could be in the fall. It could be in 2024. The other big unknown factor, of course, is we do have midterms coming up. And uh, you could see the Fed under some pressure to start turning things around before the... Yeah, that's a good point. Well. That was the end of our boost, and we don't have any corrections that we were called out on from last week, but I'm sure there were a few in there. Listen more carefully. Next time. <laughs> I love that it's their fault now. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't call us out in a boost. So. I know. Yeah, we must have. We must have been totally. You should right. be listening better. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was so. That was so critical. No, that was a very dad of you. Well, this has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, May 27th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always. With me, Chris. See you next time. <laughs>